Hello, and welcome to the Legion Spotlight on the Comic Book Page Podcast. My name is John Mann. In this episode, I'll be discussing the Legion of Superheroes for DC Comics. This is Legion Spotlight number 8, and we're going to continue our journey through the Legion of Superheroes stories. Now, we're going to zigzag a little bit in this episode. We're in the September-October 1962 time frame. We are going to start with a story on Comet the Super Horse from Action Comics. We're going to go ahead and jump to that next issue of Action Comics, because it's got kind of a second part with Comet's origin. Then we're going to zig back to go through some stories over in Adventure Comics, Superman Pals, Jimmy Olsen, Superboy, and Superman. That should fill out this episode, and that means next time we'll be able to zig just a little bit back to September 1962, head over to Adventure Comics, where the Legion gets to take center stage and be the feature of their stories, and do those stories starting next Legion Spotlight. So with that, let's get going. Next up is Action Comics number 292 with the Super Steed of Steel. Now this is an 11-page comic. If you take out kind of that opening panel of, uh, which is kind of, you know, interior cover sort of a thing, and subtract out the ad space from the last page, it's really, it's a 10-page story. And this is one I'm including because it ties into the Legion of Super Pets. It really has nothing to do with the Legion of Superheroes itself, but I figured why not. This is the first time Supergirl meets Comet the Super Horse. Now, we've already had a story with Comet the Super Horse when we got the Legion of Super Pets, but now they're circling back and actually introducing Supergirl to Comet. And in the next issue of Action Comics, which I'll go ahead and go to next, even though it's slightly out of order, we get the origin of Comet the Super Horse. Now, this is written by Jim Mooney. No, it's art by Jim Mooney. Sorry about that. It's written by Leo Dorfman, whom I wonder if this point had any daughters. I'm assuming not. If he'd met any young females, I'm assuming not. Linda Danvers, Supergirl, is really this star-eyed girl lost in daydreams. Not a very flattering portrayal of of any child. But anyways, the story starts with Linda Danvers and her foster parents going to the movies. It's a Western. She gets infatuated with how wonderful it would be to have a horse. Uh, She dreams about it that night and dreams that, while she's asleep, she, she dreams that Metropolis is getting attacked by space aliens. And... Superman's not around. Supergirl's got to go save the day. She does it. She crashes into one of these alien spacecrafts. Its weapons are powered by green kryptonite. She's helpless. She's falling out of the thing. She's going to die. But this flying horse comes by and saves her and, you know, heads back towards the uh, the spacecrafts, the fleet of them. And she's like, well, I don't have powers. This isn't good. But the horse turns around and super kicks them into space. And, oh, that's great, but this horse has a, like, a a strange mark on the back that she says resembles a shooting star. She's going to call it Comet. And and she wakes up saying, wow, what a great dream, and awesome to have a a super horse-like Comet and such. And 
she's basically spacing out daydreaming during the day. That night she has another dream in which Comet saves a uh, submarine, I guess it is, yeah. And Superman and Supergirl are credited one of the two because who else could it be? In other words, Comet didn't take any credit for this. And a surprising amount of the story is basically her having dream sequences. Now, I'm assuming next issue, which I haven't read yet, this kind of becomes more than just dreams. Uh, we do get a quick appearance by Streaky the Supercat for like two panels, just to acknowledge he's still around and has powers, he or she. And I thought Streaky lost the powers, so I don't know how Streaky got them back, but I haven't been reading every appearance of Streaky either, so there we go. But she has a dream that night, and th this night she decides, you know, I'm going to concentrate on Streaky. Maybe she'll dream about Streaky and not Comet the Superhorse. And it works. She dreams of uh, Streaky having stolen Bone from Crypto, who's uh, chasing Streaky. They go at such great speeds. They fly from 1962 to 1942, wind up in the Pacific. They're like, what's going on? What do we do? We're stuck. They decide to actually kind of sort of work together. They go down on a, a hospital ship, which is about to get attacked by kamikaze pilots. And in comes a flying superhorse that destroys the Japanese pilot before it can sink the ship. And basically, Comet guides Crypto and Streaky back to 1962. All of this being a dream sequence, it's like, wow, how wild. And at this point, her parents are thinking, let's go on a trip. Because apparently there's a holiday for school next week or whatever. And... It's like, where do you want to go? And they decide to go to the Supergirl Dude Ranch in the Sierras. And it was named that because Supergirl once saved the owner's livestock during a flood. Would have been nice to have a footnote as to when that was, but anyways. So it's like, yep, that's what we need. This will do some horseback riding. That'll get the obsession of the imaginary horse out of her system. Now, it turns out that the ranch has been bought out by somebody else. Uh, since uh, she had saved the, the livestock, she was looking forward to seeing the old guy again, but not to be. They've got a horse there that is just wild. They haven't been able to break it to somebody who could ride it and stuff. She's like, that looks exactly like Comet, the super horse she's been dreaming about. Sure enough, horse has no problem with her coming near and letting her ride him and such. So she does that. Horse takes off including going through a barbed wire fence without any damage, and she's like, oh, he must be invulnerable. Does this huge leap across uh, this big canyon and such, and gets back to the entrance, or the sign of the dude ranch that had the, the Supergirl image there, which is her way of thinking. Comet is telling her that, you know, Comet knows she's Supergirl, even though she's Linda at this point. And she takes the cape off the sign, which apparently was a cloth cape or whatever, and says, hey, it's just a temporary one. I'll get you one that's chemically treated for flames and fire or whatever. But this way you can be a, a proper super pet. And when they get back to the ranch, the the new owner's like, it doesn't make any sense. That that horse is, is totally wild. How is this girl doing it? Doesn't make sense. And she's like thinking to herself, well, we're old friends, even though they've literally never met. And the last panel is... Uh, Linda saying to Comet, you know, a lot I don't understand. Where did you come from? How did you get to be Super Horse? Why did I dream of your existence? Will these questions ever be answered? And, of course, the caption at the bottom says, well, yes, next issue we'll find out the 
thrilling origin of Comet the Mysterious Supersteed. It's like, okay. So I'm going to jump to that next, even though it took place the next month and there's a few other issues between, but I figure, hey, two-parter kind of a thing. Let's just go with that. So technically, I guess this takes place in the original Legion era, but it doesn't really feature the Legion at all. It does have half the Legion of Super Pets with Comet and Streaky, and actually Crypto was in here. Kind of, sort of, briefly, it's assuming the dream sequences are more than just dream sequences. I'm assuming that it's Comet, you know, telepathically telling her things. But if that's so, why is it only in dreams? I, I don't know that I... I don't know if I've ever read the origin of Comet, and if I had, it has been decades, and clearly I don't remember it. So, really, the, the big key event here is uh, Supergirl meets Comet the Super Horse for the first time. Comet being a member of the Legion of Super Pets, hence including it in this sequence. So that's really about it for the Super Steed of Steel from Action Comics 292. Next up is Action Comics number 293 with the secret origin of Supergirl's Super Horse. This is written by Leo Dorfman and artist Jim Mooney. It's in the October 1962 issue of Action Comics. Cover price 12 cents. It's an 11-page story. There's other stories in the issue. And I'm covering this because it's kind of the continuation of the uh, story in which Supergirl first meets Comet, although Comet had appeared previously. This gives his origin, as you could probably guess from the title of the story. I'm not going to keep going with the Comet stuff after this, but I did want to kind of go through his his origin and stuff just to refresh, or to learn it myself or refresh my memory. I don't know if I'd ever known all of it. I knew bits of it. It's a strange character. So in this issue, we've got Supergirl, Superman, Comet, Streaky, Crypto, and we get a quick recap, I mean a super quick recap, of the bare essential highlights of the story from the previous issue. Linda's been dreaming about a super horse, winds up finding him at the Supergirl dude ranch, and story kind of continues from there. He's a horse, he hasn't been shooed and branded, so it's got to happen. She's like, oh, I'll take care of that. And of course, nobody else can control the horse, so the owner of the ranch lets her do that. She uses her heat vision to kind of melt them around the edges, uh, the the horseshoes around the edges of, of Comet's hooves. She creates a bit of a smoke screen so she can fake branding him using her heat vision on her lipstick with the brand to make it... Uh, kind of the brand kind of stick to the side of Comet's hide and such, at least temporarily. And she then, with that over and out of the way, is able to go for a ride with, with Comet. They go off in a ways. And at this point, he reveals he is telepathic and can clearly communicate with her. Why that didn't happen last issue, I have no idea. It may have been when they were working on this when they realized it would be impossible to tell the story otherwise. Because a fair amount of this is Comet giving his his backstory. It turns out he is Earthborn. He was born in ancient Greece as a centaur, fell in love with the sorceress Circe, and basically wound up saving her from an evil wizard. And it's like, oh, great, you whatever you wish. He's like, I wish to be human. And she's like, I'll work on that. She creates two potions, one that would turn him into a horse and one that'll turn him into a man. Now, since he only wanted to be turned into a man, I don't know why she created the other one, but it's important for the story because he goes and drinks the one that'll turn him into a man and turns into a horse. Turns out the potions were swapped. She's like, oh, I feel so bad about this. 
There's no antidote, no remedy, but she can whip up another potion, because of course that's what he wants. But this one will give him the might of Jove, the speed of Mercury, the wisdom of Athena, telepathic powers of Neptune, king of the sea, and he'll be immortal. Now, at this point, given that list of powers, I'm thinking, geez, is this horse for Supergirl or is it for Mary Marvel? Granted, I don't think they had Mary Marvel at this point, but with that lineup of powers, sure seems that way. Anyways, that kind of messes up the evil wizard's plans, but he then consults an evil soothsayer, who's like, oh, he's a centaur, he's controlled by the signs of Sagittarius. Sprinkle this powder on him and he'll be exiled to that constellation forever. So, evil wizard gets the stuff, the powder sprinkles it on the now horse, horse gets hurled into space and trapped on a remote asteroid by this magic aura. Now, ages later, rocket ship flies by, and guess whose it is? Yep, it's Supergirl's. Now, at this point, she interrupts the story. He's like, yeah, yeah, I figured that part out. Don't worry. It says Comet slash Byron, which is his name. Although she seems to gloss over the name stuff and just keeps calling him Comet, which I don't know if that's kind of... seems kind of rude, but anyways. Her rocket was equipped with uh, repeller rays to destroy any meteors that could get in the way, that kind of a thing. So when the rays struck the asteroid he was trapped on, it shattered the magic aura, freeing him. So... He's very thankful for that, has nowhere else to go, and it's going to Earth anyways, so he wants to go back to home anyways. And he realizes time has elapsed, so he basically just finds a a herd of wild horses and kind of hangs with them while keeping an eye on Supergirl remotely. So he's exhibiting telescopic vision here, which I don't know which of the Greek gods provided that. Uh, Later he has uh, heat vision. He's He's got very classically Kryptonian powers, and he's not the least bit Kryptonian. So he basically has been keeping a secret identity up until he learned of some threats that were coming and telepathically warned her via the dreams. Now, at this point, the story gets interrupted by her parents, who's like, hey, you know, the the whole rodeo thing's going to start. You got to come for that. She's like, all right. She rides Comet in that, does a fairly good showing and basically winds up with Comet just darting off with her on him. He's like, oh, they'll be all right, but this is when the aliens attack from the first dream of the the previous issue. And she's remembered enough of the dreams to to know that they were warnings and such, and the the high-level stuff, but apparently forgotten enough of the details that when she breaks into the craft... She's hit by the kryptonite bolts again, she's weakened, she's rescued by Comet, and she's like, oh yeah. And this is when Comet kicks the thing out into space. Now, it's only one ship, not a whole fleet of them, and the idea is that he got them when it was just the advanced scout. Now, when they're fixing some of the damage and stuff, because apparently this is at the, the World's Fair in Metropolis, he's exhibiting heat vision and stuff like that too. Again, don't know which Greek gods provided that. They get back to the dude ranch. She's like, very grateful. I want to reward you, because apparently that's what people do for super horses or centaurs. He's like, I just want to be human again. She's like, hey, I don't know if I can do that, but I'll, I'll, I'll see if there's some other way to help. And he's like, oh, there is another way, but I can't tell you now. The time is not ripe. So I don't know if or when that happens later. 
But they get back to the dude ranch with Linda thinking on the way, I'm going to see if I can get my parents to buy Comet from the ranch. That way they can stay together. And he's like, oh, that's a great idea. Unfortunately, by the time they get back to the ranch, the owner has already sold Comet to an animal trainer from Hollywood. And it's like, well, I guess we're going to part at this point. And the final caption's implying next issue's going to have yet another Comet story and such. Now, I'm not going to keep following this because, I mean, I want to get back to the Legion itself. Comet's just a member of the Legion of Super Pets, not the Legion of Superheroes. But I did want to get the backstory on the character. And him being an ancient Greek centaur that was turned into a horse, hurtled across space, given magic powers, all this kind of stuff, that somehow magically, literally magically resemble standard Kryptonian powers, more than a little far-fetched, I'll be honest. But not a horrible story, just not a great one. I'm not finding what Leo Dorfman's writing at this point to be anywhere on par with like some of the stuff we'd gotten with the uh, the Ultra Boy issue or some of the other stuff. Not bad, but not top-notch stuff in my opinion. But now I've relearned if I'd known it before or learned if I hadn't known it before, The Secret Origin of Supergirl's Super Horse from Action Comics 293. Next up is The League of Fantastic Supermen from Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen number 63. Now, this is a story that I'm going to put, I guess, in the adult Legion time. It's It's got nothing to do with the Legion. It's got the Legion of Super Villains. They tend to be from the adult Legion time at this point. And it's a riff on a red kryptonite story that we would get at this point. And basically, Jimmy's at the fortress because Superman's letting him walk around there while he's on a mission to you know, figure out some angle for a new story or something like that. There's a message from the bottle city of Kandor. Four of their worst criminals are escaping and fleeing Kandor, and they've kind of released a nerve gas that's knocking out everyone else in Kandor. So, Kandor is the bottle city of, of Kandor. There's this floating platform that can be used to get people up, or it's a rocket, different things, different time. Basically, if the Kandorians can get up to the, the cork at the top, they usually have like an enlarging gas that can make them a little bit taller, you know, a couple inches, which they can then push the cork out of the way, fly out. Now they're in Earth's atmosphere and stuff. They get the powers of Superman, even though they're, you know, tiny. So these four guys are dressed up as Superman, these four crooks, figuring if Superman returns unexpectedly, he'll just assume they're members of the Superman emergency squad off on a mission. So it, you know, is kind of their disguise or whatever. And Jimmy, of course, knows they're getting out. He's been contacted by the authorities in Kandor. He's like, well, the minute they get out, they're going to have powers. What can I do? Well, he says, ah, there's a ray gun around here. I know there is. He finds it, and he uses that on those guys. Well, inexplicably, it's a red kryptonite ray gun, and it is causing them to have different manifestations. Uh, One of them gets a lion head. Uh, Another one gets aged to where he looks, you know, he's got a white beard that goes down to his knees. Another one looks like the proverbial man of the future with the really big head and stuff. And the other one looks like an alien. Now, granted, he's Tonian, so he's already an alien, but whatever. And I'm not sure why these guys weren't already in the Phantom Zone. And that actually becomes relevant because as soon as these guys knock out Jimmy and hightail it out of the, the fortress, in the future, using a time scope, the Legion of Supervillains 
see them, grab them, and put them in a little kryptonite cage. And at this point, the Legion of Supervillains is Cosmic King, Lightning Lord, Chameleon Chief, who's got Super Disguise, and Sun Emperor with Super Heat, Chameleon Chief and Sun Emperor being new members. And they basically disguise themselves as these four Kryptonians. And they then go back in time and kind of wreck a little bit of havoc before surrendering. And there's a couple of panels of of exposition here where they're explaining their brilliant plan of substituting themselves for the Kandorian crooks, doing enough that it's like, okay, we're, we're crooks or whatever, but they pretend to repent and go back, figuring they'll get sent to the Phantom Zone. Now, granted, the Kandorians would only send other Kryptonians to the Phantom Zone, hence pretending to be that. And they've rigged their flight belts, their anti-gravity belts, to have some kind of radiation that'll rip a hole open to the Phantom Zone, allowing all the Phantom Zone prisoners to escape, figuring, hey, those Kryptonian crooks will love to join the Legion of Supervillains. We'll be able to rule the planet, destroy it, whatever. So all of this is a jailbreak for a recruiting ploy. Now, it takes them a couple of panels to get this out. Again, quite a bit of exposition. They then get to the fortress. Jimmy's got the Superman robots all set to destroy them. And they're like, oh, no, no, we, we surrender. And they get sent back to Kandor. You know, drop down a little thread into the bottle. Except, ah, Jimmy has outsmarted them. It's a fake bottled city of Kandor, which we will see variations on that a number of times. Supergirl drops by. It's like, but how did you know? Well, Lori Lamaris and Supergirl had encountered them. I kind of glossed over that part while they were out doing shenanigans. And Lori is telepathic, read their minds, realized they were the supervillains and what their plan was, which is why Jimmy had one of the Superman robots you know, put together a fake bottle city of Kandor that these guys couldn't break out of, you know, with Lightning Lord's powers, etc. Although, still not sure how Cosmic King couldn't just, you know, transmute part of the bottle away or whatever. But that basically wraps that up, and Supergirl flies the fake bottle of city and the the captives back to the future so they can be dealt with by the uh, police of their time. Not going to say it's a great story, but Jerry Siegel, so it's it's decent writing, a little exposition heavy in a few places. Art by Kurt Swan, who again, definitive Superman artist of the time. Hard to go wrong with this. I'm not going to say it's my favorite story or whatever. I'm not really all that huge of a fan of the Adult Legion, and this didn't even have them. It just had the Legion of Supervillains. But the Legion of Supervillains in various younger versions or whatever do show up later, hence wanting to cover this. But it's, it's I think, one of the better stories of the era in terms of the story sensibility and stuff, the wackiness, the, again, the red kryptonite, you know, affecting these guys these ways and stuff. It's very different than the modern stuff. Not bad but you got to know what you're getting in for. So once again, that's the League of Fantastic Superman from Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, number 63. Next up is Superboy 100 and the day Pete Ross became a robot. Now, this story features Pete. It's technically a Superboy story, but he's like barely in it. And the basic premise here is Pete, He's got a new tape recorder. He's out collecting sound samples and stuff like that. So he's getting the siren from the police chief in Smallville when a Superboy uh, radios Chief Parker saying, hey, I'm about to head to the Legion. 
you know, in the future for one of their meetings, they're studying robots, so I'm taking all my robots with me. It's like, well, what about an emergency? It's like, I'll leave one, don't worry. Now, this sets up a few things. One, Pete decides he's not got any sound recording of Superboy traveling at super speed, and this is a great opportunity for that whoosh. So he heads to the secret tunnel entrance to the, the Kent's house. Now, how he knows about this, I'm not entirely sure. We get a quick flashback of the camping trip he was on with Clark, where because of a lightning flash at the right time, he sees Clark changing into Superboy and such. But he doesn't let Clark know because he doesn't want him hampered by the knowledge and feeling the need to set up a new identity and all that kind of stuff. At some point, I do need to chase down that story because I do think it'd be fun to do a quick reread of that. But the whole story is around how Pete is really, you know, again, trying to protect Superboy's identity. So he gets the sound effect of the whoosh as Superboy and the robots are flying out of the, the hatch for the secret tunnel and such. But unfortunately, the, the door jams, it doesn't close properly, so Pete's like, oh, I better fix it, so nobody discovers that. And he's like, well, since I'm here, a little inspection of the trophy room wouldn't hurt now, would it? Now, how he knows about the trophy room, again, not sure. But temptation's too much, he goes in there and stuff, takes a quick look around, sees the little statuettes of the Legion, we get Cosmic Boy, Saturn Girl, Ultra Boy, Lightning Lad, and Chameleon Boy. There's a metal flower from the planet Zendar, it's probably from some previous story or whatnot, an anti-gravity belt from the fire world of the Kaldor galaxy or whatever, and he's like, ooh, I gotta try that. So he plays around with that and is able to figure out how to work it pretty easily, but winds up bumping into the sole remaining Superboy robot, damaging its control circuits. Now, sure enough, it's like, I gotta fix it before an emergency arises, and as soon as he thinks that, an emergency arises. So... Chief Parker's calling for the robot because the president of the Metropolis Jewelry Exchange is trapped in the exchange vault. Only one who knows the combination. They're afraid he's going to suffocate. Superboy's got to come at once. Now, this is just kind of funny to me because it was only two issues ago Pete was stuck in the bank vault in the story of The Boy with Ultra Powers in Superboy 98, and this is Superboy 100. So he's like, what do I do? I can't fix the robot in time. Jonathan Kent's upstairs, because this is a basement workshop, wondering why the robot hasn't taken off, and using his recording equipment, he is able to, to make it sound like the robot takes off. Now, he then uses the flight belt and is going to go do something in place of the robot, but realizes he's got to pretend to be the Superboy robot. Now, can he do that without looking like Superboy? So he heads home, and he's got a Superboy disguise. Now, I don't know if they'd set this up before or not. Very well may have, because, again, Pete was kind of... Uh, he was the flip side of the Lana's trying to discover Clark is, is and Superboy are the same person. Pete's out to uh, secretly protect that, that secret. So posing as Superboy or whatnot would be the sort of thing he would do. Now, he flies out to the jewelry exchange sees the repair truck getting, you know, is stuck in traffic on the way. So when he gets there, he's like, well, they want him to use his super strength or heat vision to open the door. And he's like, oh, I don't have those. So he basically acts like a robot that's having a, a glitch of, you know, and stuck in a loop or whatever to buy enough time for the repairman to show up and basically blow the door, which Pete uses as an excuse to kind of reactivate, you know, the robot he's pretending to be. Now, sure enough, the uh, repair guy has way too much explosives. He's got some excess. 
too dangerous to keep around, so he gives them to Superboy for safekeeping. Well, it's not Superboy, it's not even the robot, it's Pete. He's like, okay. So he's going to take that back to Superboy's workshop. Now keep in mind, he's still got to fix the robot. No sooner does he get there than there's another emergency. This time, an iceberg from the Arctic has floated down and is blocking Smallville Harbor. So I guess Smallville's a uh, seaside town. The cold's condensing the moisture, heavy fog, traffic's at a standstill. The berg must be destroyed. So Pete takes off again. Now he gets there, and from what the bystanders see, because we see it from their perspective first, is the Superboy robot uses a super shout to shatter the iceberg. Well, really what he's doing is he's using the spare explosives to shatter the iceberg and is playing a uh, lion roar at full blast with his recording equipment to kind of make it seem like it was the, the shout that he did. Again, very clever. But on the way back, he gets stopped by a bus whose uh, way is blocked by a tree that he's got to get rid of, and he makes it seem like he's hurled the tree into space. Now, one of the things that throws me the whole time is everybody is referring to him as the Superboy robot. The whole point of the robots is they were indistinguishable from Superboy, but not so much here, which is funny because, again, it's Pete the whole time. He threw the thing hard enough, fast enough, that it's uh, to a, a nearby plane looking like it's a missile, but really it's going fast enough that it's burning up from friction. Because what Pete did is he put the anti-gravity belt that he was using on the tree and just said, hey, go full blast for five minutes in the upper atmosphere. It does that, it turns off, it falls to the ground, he collects it, heads back to the workshop, finally able to try to repair the robot. Now, I don't know what kind of experience Pete has repairing robots. It's insufficient. He's unable to do it. Now, because this is a comic book and this is how things go, the Kent's toaster short circuits and sets the, the uh, curtains on fire. So they're calling for help. Pete can't get the robot working, and he's like, what's he got to do now? Well, this is where the Legion comes in, because a time globe shows up with Ultra Boy, who quickly diagnoses the problem with his penetravision, that it's a jammed coil or whatever, fixes it, sends the robot up to help the Kents, who, you know, takes the, the fire out with a super breath pretty quickly, because it didn't, didn't seem to spread much in the few minutes that took. Ultra Boy quickly fills in Pete that they were watching Superboy to see when he was going to head out to the future. Now, why they're doing that, don't know. But they then saw Pete foolishly slip into the, the workshop, accidentally damage the robot, and then do all these things to, to cover for the robot being broken. And they're fairly impressed that this guy is pretty clever and without powers can do all these things. Just the, the ingenuity and such. So... Uh, Ultra Boy also wiped enough of the robot's memories to keep Pete's secret safe, and then hops in the um, time globe to skedaddle and basically tells Pete, Superboy's going to be back soon. And then the last two pages are the next day with Clark and Pete walking around town, and Clark seeing the headlines of everything the Superboy robot did, and Pete kind of thinking to himself, oh, you, if you only knew the full story sort of a thing. So it's a good Pete Ross story. Again, Superboy is in there for, really, all of a panel as he flies off to the Legion. We get uh, Clark for two panels at the end, but everything else is either Superboy robot or Pete pretending to be a Superboy robot. All in all, it's a fun story. It was written by Jerry Coleman. George Papp was the artist. We're in October 1962 here. 12 cent cover price, and it was uh, about an 11-page story. 
there was an ad on the last page, so ten and a half, whatever. Not essential reading, but Pete Ross is a cool character that I really think they could have and should have done more with in the Superman era. And at one point they did. They had him be vice president to Lex Luthor's president, which was kind of interesting. But this is, again, setting up Pete eventually becoming a reserve member of the Legion. So once again, that's the day Pete Ross became a robot from Superboy 100. Next up is Superman number 156 and the last days of Superman. Now this is a full comic story. It's actually told in three parts. Part one, Superman's death sentence. Part two, the super comrades of all time. And part three, Superman's last day of life. Now I'm not going to go into crazy detail on this story, but it's a bit of a mind-boggling one. It was written by Edmund Hamilton and Kurt Swan doing the art. So again, beautiful art. And it's It reads like an imaginary story, and for those not familiar, this would be when they wanted to tell a story that would just kind of shatter continuity. They wanted to tell the story, but it's not one that could be told as part of continuity because it did things that just couldn't, shouldn't be done, or or whatever, like the the original Superman Red, Superman Blue story, or some other things like the Super Sons, things when wacky things happen, and they just need the out. But this isn't an imaginary story. It's a... It's a real imaginary story, sort of, because it reads like an imaginary story, but it actually happens in continuity. And what happens is there is a satellite in orbit. It's about to get hit by an object. Superman's able to take care of the object, but it's green kryptonite, so we can't get too close. So he uses, what was it, the uh, the rocket boosters from the rocket to knock it down to an uninhabited area near Metropolis. And then Jimmy shows up there, and Jimmy's human, Green Kryptonite's not going to bug him, so he's able to check the thing out, but Superman's just going to drive it deep underground with a a big boulder or whatever, And but he sees some writing in it, and it's Kryptonian, and it says the box contains samples of Virus X, contagious fatal in 30 days to any native of Krypton, and Superman's, oh, the wind's blowing my way, we've already popped the lid or whatever, so... You know, he tries to bury the thing pretty quick, but isn't feeling so great afterwards. Dizzy, weak, that sort of a thing. This leads him to think he's basically contracted Virus X. Now, using his super memory, he remembers when he was a small child, his father talking to Tharb L. Now, using the full name makes me wonder, it's like, clearly it's the same last name. Are they related? Are they not? There's no indication they're related, so maybe L is a more common name than I had thought. Anyways. You know, if if this guy had found a cure for the virus, he's like, no, I haven't. I've tried cold, vacuum, it seems indestructible. So, again, Superman's thinking he's contracted this thing, and it's, it's what's he going to do about it? And the whole story is fear of death, and, and what's going to happen? Is he going to do everything he needs to for humanity? You know, he's got all these grand plans that he figured he had decades to do, but now not so much. So, while he's trying to take care of various things, creating these canals for irrigating desert lands, you know, he's got this threat that's uh, far away in space he's got to deal with, a couple of things like that. Now, some of this he farms out to the Superman robots. He has them also build a lead glass containment thing so he doesn't get Supergirl sick with this. And the Legion gets called in for for helping on some stuff. Lori Lamaris gets called in. I think even the uh, the Superman uh, emergency squad gets called in on some of this stuff. Yeah, and 
they're doing all this this stuff, and the Legion's showing up to help or whatever. Brainiac Five's trying to use this as the opportunity to atone for Brainiac's sins and stuff like that. And we see a couple of you know big saves of a an asteroid that would later potentially hit the Earth is getting knocked out of orbit. This space virus or whatever that was coming to to Earth is eradicated through uh, Supergirl and the Legion's uh, actions and stuff like that. And there are times Superman's feeling better, other times not so much. And the whole thing, again, reads very much like a imaginary story of this era. And one of the other things that was just kind of a, what a different time it was. They're trying to figure out how to find more useful land on the planet. So they are basically setting up a large metal sculpture kind of a thing, a sphere, that they have Sunboy kind of ignite to slowly, a uh, new small sun, if you will, melt all of Antarctica's ice, providing water. Now, of course, if they knew then what we knew now, maybe they wouldn't have done that. But all of this is happening. Superman's uh, said goodbye to Batman and Robin. He's put a, a inspirational message etched on the moon with his heat vision, including that he's Clark Kent because well, he's dying. He can let people know. But through all of this, they realize there's got to be a way to, to, to cure this virus X. Supergirl travels into the past to Krypton, hears the discussion Superman had remembered, but the part that Superman had missed was that Tharb L was, was going to eradicate all the virus and, and give up on this research or, or whatnot. It's just too dangerous. So if he doesn't have this, why does he feel like he's dying? Well, Monel is finally able to break through all the mental clutter and stuff and reach Satagirl because they've all been so focused on Superman and stuff that it's like, yeah, it's not Virus X. It's a nugget of green kryptonite that when Superman smashed the chest underground, knocked off the chest, got stuck in Jimmy's camera. So every time Jimmy is near Superman, he's got kryptonite poisoning, and that's why he's not feeling well. So that was kind of their out for what otherwise could have been the Death of Superman imaginary story. Now, of course, Superman realizes, you know, maybe I ought to, you know, erase that whole Clark Kent signature on the moon pretty quickly. I am curious how long that message on the moon stayed there. It probably didn't be on this, but, you know, good to, the, the message was, do good to others and every man can be a Superman. Again, inspirational kind of, you know, lunar vandalism and graffiti, but, you know, who's counting? It's Superman. We'll let him do it. And then we get a quick, you know, kind of a thing at the end as everybody's flying off to go home and whatnot. So it's one of those, it's in continuity, it's got the original Legion, but they're from the future, they should have known he wasn't going to die, yet they're showing up anyways. That's a little weird. Again, it reads like an imaginary story, but it's in continuity. And we get quite a bit of the Legion. We get Cosmic Boy, Lightning Lad, Saturn Girl, Bouncing Boy, Brainiac 5, Invisible Kid, Triplicate Girl, Sun Boy, Chameleon Boy, and even Monel, who's not technically a member at this point. Now, I'm not going to say they all do, you know, pivotal things in the story, but a number of them get a chance to, to kind of shine. So, worth including on, on that count. But again, it was one of those odd ducks of telling the sort of story they would do very often at this era but doing it in a different way. And I like when they put some better spins on some of these ideas than, you know, just, hey, we had the story, it's out of continuity, and deal with it. And, you know, again, kind of some fun stuff. 
So yeah, once again, that's The Last Days of Superman from Superman number 156. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.